Good afternoon. Uh, let me welcome everyone to the Cato Institute and to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. My name is Justin Logan. I'm a foreign policy analyst here at Cato, uh, and it's my pleasure to moderate uh, this event for Ethical Realism, a vision for America's role in the world uh, by our authors John Holzman and Anatole Levin. Um, we have sort of a useful backdrop, if alarming and discomforting, uh, in the form of the North Korean, uh, either successful or unsuccessful now, we are suspecting nuclear test. Uh, and I think it's interesting to look at the, the nature of the foreign policy commentary in the mainstream media to get a sense of where broad brush discussions of American foreign policy have gone. Uh, we have James Baker making the seemingly contra uh, controversial statement that it is, quote, not appeasement to talk to your enemies. Um, we have the Washington Post today revisiting the concept of an axis of evil. We have several policy prescriptions about what to do with respect to North Korea, uh, first of which uh, comes that the doctrine of preemption must return to the fore. We also have the lesson that, quote, Bush must now choose whether his legacy will be one of inaction or leadership, Chamberlain or Churchill. Uh, and then we have a very specific proposal that we must invite South Korea and Japan into NATO, perhaps whispering that the Taiwanese would be invited as well, and actively encourage Japan to abrogate the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and go nuclear itself. And it's into this environment uh, that Anatole Levin and John Holzman have interjected themselves. So I, th I think it's safe to say that they have their work cut out for them. Let me first uh, introduce our authors, uh, and then they will speak for about 12 minutes each. Uh, then I'll introduce our commentators. They'll have the same amount of time. And then I guess we'll do five or so minutes uh, for a rebuttal before turning it to the audience for question and answers. The first speaker today will be John Holzman, who is a contributing editor to the. Oh, Anatole will go for. All right, pardon me. Anatole will be Anatole Levin will be our first speaker today. He's a senior research fellow at the New America Foundation, covering American strategy and international relations. He spent much of his career as a British journalist covering South Asia and the former Soviet Union. Uh, on the latter region, he has written several books. Uh, and his previous book, American National, uh, America Right or Wrong, An Anatomy of American Nationalism, was published in 2004 by Oxford University Press. The second speaker will be John Holzman, who is a contributing editor to the National Interest and the von Oppenheim Scholar-in-Residence at the German Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, before, before his current affiliations, Holzman was a senior research fellow in international relations at the Heritage Foundation. He's published articles in the National Interest, Policy Review, The American Conservative, uh, Newsweek, and many other publications. Holzman holds doctorate and master's degrees in modern history and in international relations from the University of St. Andrews. So with that, I'll turn things over to Anatole Levin. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be at the Cato again among so many friends. Um, your words about us interjecting ourselves into this policy debate rather reminds me of an old story about, I think it was Lytton Strachey, uh, the famous biographer, gay and pacifist, um, facing a conscription committee during the First World War, which asked him, what would you do if you saw a German attempting to rape your sister? To which Strachey replied, I would attempt to get between them. <laughs> I hope a similar fate does not await John and me, although I suspect it might. Wow. <laughs> um, 
As our title suggests, uh, this book is founded on the principles of ethical realism, as drawn up in somewhat different ways uh, by Reinhold Niebuhr, George Kennan and Hans Morgenthau, whom we believe, with, I think, considerable evidence, to have been the three greatest thinkers on international affairs that this country produced in the course of the 20th century. Their thought, in turn, was based to a considerable degree on that of Edmund Burke, whose statue stands not far from this building. And part of our original motivation for this book was our concern that Niebuhr's legacy in particular, um, and that of the Americans for Democratic Action, which he helped to found, uh, was being severely misrepresented, even kidnapped, uh, by liberal hawk authors such as uh, Peter Beinart, uh, formerly of the New Republic. No, still of the New Republic. And in their presentation of Niebuhr's thought, they severely downplayed or even ignored altogether certain key elements in his thinking and in his philosophy. These included his categorical opposition to preventive war, his insistence uh, that American policymakers learn to distinguish between different types and degrees of enemy... Uh, and tailor their policies accordingly, his insistence on understanding and even to a degree sympathising with anti-American nationalism in what we now call the developing world uh, and in the way that this fused with communism uh, in very powerful uh, movements, his strong opposition, partly for this reason, to America's involvement in the Vietnam War, and above all, that, uh, especially in his work, The Irony of American History, he was one of the most trenchant critics of American national and democratic messianism, as exemplified today both by the Bush administration and by liberal hawks um, who are extremely powerful within the Democratic Party establishment. Now, John and I would be very happy uh, to sketch out what we take to be the main principles of ethical realism in response to questions. Uh, in my remarks, however, um, I would like instead to draw some practical implications from those principles for US strategy today and for the creation uh, of what we call in our book the great capitalist peace. This idea is founded on the belief that peace, order, development and the long-term spread of democracy, real democracy in the world, require compromise between the United States and other leading regional powers and regional groupings of states. And also, and this is a key theme of our book, um, that to place American global power on a firmer basis categorically requires that it be placed on a more limited basis, since the present level of American overstretch should, I think, now be blindingly obvious to us all. Now, for this, I have no doubt whatsoever that we will be subject to the I-word by many critics. The I-word is, of course, isolationism. And it has been used um, by a variety of American internationalists and imperialists in much the same way uh, that conservatives uh, over the past couple of decades have used the L-word to damn 
liberals and progressives. Uh, the interesting and very dangerous thing, dangerous especially for John and me, is that, of course, this I-word has been used by representatives of both party establishments uh, to try to denigrate and delegitimise uh, the kind of arguments that we are putting forward. It will, I hope, be apparent that we are not isolationists. We do, in fact, believe in America's global leadership. We just do not think that this is working out very well at present. Now, to adopt this new strategy, it is essential that the American establishment in general, and that most emphatically means the Democrats as well as the Republicans, establish a hierarchy of American national interests and concentrate, distinguish those that are truly vital interests and concentrate on those interests. To be able to do this requires in turn that a United States administration and the American establishment in general be prepared to compromise on other secondary interests. That recalls for me a famous statement of de Gaulle's who knew something about governing. He said that to govern is to choose. And he added, usually to choose between unpleasant alternatives. In other words, most of the time, governments have to choose the lesser of two evils, or at least an alternative which, if we had a, true, a, free, a completely free choice of decisions, we would, would not wish to take. Now, in the book, we point to a historical parallel for two countries, two great imperial powers, one of which was able to choose, one of which failed to do so. The country that failed to choose was Great Britain, the British Empire, in the 20 years or so before the First World War. When parallels are made today in America, and also may I say in Britain, oddly enough, uh, to the British Empire, it's, the writers usually concentrate on two periods. Either, like Niall Ferguson, the period uh, in the high 19th century when the British Empire was at its height and really was free to do uh, almost what it liked in many parts of the world, or the British Empire nearing its end in the 1930s and the catastrophic example of appeasement. For us, a much more apt parallel is Britain before the First World War. When Britain was still a great power, uh, indeed, as the only great power which was present on all the continents of the world, you could say that in its day it was still a super it was the world's only superpower. Uh, and by the way, in the 1890s and 1900s, uh, Britain was not getting absolutely weaker. On the contrary, the British economy grew during those years as fast as it had in most of the 19th century. Uh, there were tremendous technological developments in Britain. Just one problem. Germany, the United States, Japan and Russia all grew a lot faster. So in relative terms, Britain was great at getting weaker. Now, what did the British establishment do? And by the way, the bipartisan British establishment over time, conservatives as well as liberals, they sat down and it was very painful, but with considerable moral courage and great intellectual clarity, they decided that if Britain was going to be able to defend itself where it really mattered in Europe on its own doorstep, it was going to have to make compromises elsewhere in the world. And they sat down and they made compromises, first with the United States over Latin America, then with Japan over the Far East, with France over Africa, and finally, even with Russia over Persia, um, an issue which for most of the 19th century had defined Britain's foreign and imperial policy. 
Now, one could well say that Britain shouldn't have got involved in the First World War anyway, but my point is that if they hadn't made those compromises, Britain would have lost the First World War in 1915. Take the other great example of the period, Britain's rival Germany. There was nothing mysterious. Um, There was no rocket science involved in the choice that Germany faced. Bismarck had told the Germans about this choice again and again and again in public. And what he had said was, look, if you decide that uh, Germany, to be a great power, to fulfil its historical destiny, must have a great empire, then a great colonial empire, then you have to be prepared to fight Britain. That means obviously building a great fleet. It also means compromising with Russia in Europe and in the Ottoman Empire. Basically, if you want to dominate the colonial world, you've got to give Russia what it wants in the Ottoman Empire and the Balkans. On the other hand, if you decide that that is completely unacceptable, that Russia is too much of a threat, uh, that it would be madness uh, you know, to go out and acquire African colonies which Bismarck despised, meanwhile allowing Russia to become the number one power in Europe and ultimately threaten your key, key ally Austria, then you have to compromise with Britain. That means giving up the idea of a great colonial empire. That means keeping a small fleet and basically placing your trade and your existing colonies under the protection of Great Britain. The Germans couldn't choose because the German imperial establishment and government was based domestically on two great pillars. And it was based on those those two pillars because it could not or would not base itself on the third, which was a compromise with the progressive liberals and the social democrats. And those two pillars were the agrarian elites who hated Russia partly for commercial reasons, and were also dedicated to a great land army, which meant the potential of conflict with Russia. And on the other hand, the great industrial elites who wanted a big fleet and a great German trading empire. The Germans could not choose. They lost the First World War in consequence. Now, the US establishment in recent years, the bipartisan establishment, has been incredibly bad at choosing between different priorities. And the results we see today, literally in the past few days, uh, we are facing a nuclear test by North Korea with the gravest implications for American interests in the Far East and for peace in that region. We seem to be drifting towards the possibility uh, of either having to fight Iran or accepting defeat and humiliation at the hands of Iran. Our army is bogged down in Iraq, and I say our army because it's Britain's too. Uh, and facing de facto defeat there. Our army is bogged down in Afghanistan, uh, and the situation there is sliding downhill, as we've heard from many senior commanders in recent weeks. Um, We face the whole imbroglio over Israel, Palestine, and Syria. And now, now, we are facing, in the Caucasus, the possibility that our client state, Georgia, is going to go to war with Russia over South Ossetia. How many people in this room have been to South Ossetia? Bravo. Yes, I I knew it might be Wayne. I mean, what next? What next? Are we going to get get involved in the Chilean-Argentine dispute over the Beagle Channel, for God's sake? Now, the failure to choose has been most evident in the Middle East. And once again, it is the fault of both parties. After 9-11, the choice was obvious. We were facing an attack and a threat from Sunni radical Islamism, represented 
and led by al-Qaeda. There are two other major ideological and political forces in the Muslim world. There is the Shia tradition led by Iran and there is the Sunni Arab nationalist tradition represented at its most extreme uh, by the Ba'ath in Iraq. And the great thing is they all hate each other. As we all know now from recent leaks from the words of my colleague Flint Leverett at the New America Foundation, we were given two opportunities to make a compromise with Iran and Syria after 9-11. We brushed both of them aside without even looking at them. Uh, We needed to make a compromise with at least one of the three forces in the Middle East. We've attacked them all or threatened them all simultaneously. This comes close to a classical definition of geopolitical madness, in my view, uh, and in John's view as well. Uh, Our recommendations for the region will be developed uh, by John. Oh, and by the way, we haven't even captured Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri, or killed them. We say three things, and John will develop these in more detail. First, uh, we need to make a genuine push for peace between Israel, Palestine, and Syria. And every past experience demonstrates two things. One is this has to be negotiated as one package, not in isolation. Secondly, the United States, as it has in similar circumstances elsewhere where it was deeply involved take Bosnia, take Kosovo, has to define the end point that it is aiming at and then stick to it and press it on both parties. Uh, Secondly, um, which John will elaborate further, when it comes to a solution, well, not a solution of Iraq, but preventing Iraq becoming a complete disaster and also a grave humiliation for the United States, we need to create a regional concert. Yes, partition of Iraq is now frankly unavoidable. But to make that partition work without endless civil war, we need the regional states, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria and Turkey, to guarantee the setup uh, that is created. We can't do it because we're not going to stay there forever. It's them. That requires, in turn, some kind of at least provisional compromise with Iran on the subject of of Iran's uh, nuclear program, which John will elaborate further. Now, maybe some of you will say that this is completely unreal. Well, all I can say is it's not more unreal than the policies that the bipartisan American establishment has pursued in recent years. Thank you. morning. So let's see. Um, I have North Korea, China, Iraq, Middle East, peace, and Iran in 12 minutes. Um, No problems here at all. Um, I'm going to focus primarily on Iran because I think it's very important that one of the strengths of the book come out. Um, And my family have been very involved, lived and died with this book and me. And the Atlantic Monthly Review came out yesterday. And we rushed down, and I gave it to my mother to read, who was very, very pleased with it, which is a tough crowd indeed. And she said that the line she liked best was that we actually, based on our philosophy, formulate really concrete policies that we can all talk about, which is exactly what Fukuyama did not do, which is exactly what Beiner did not do. It's easy to take pot shots at people philosophically, but how do you evolve that into a strategy and then to the level where the rubber hits the road? Policy. The only question I've ever been asked by any policymaker is, John, what do you want me to do? 
And if you can't answer that question, I'll, we have an effective barroom conversation. It may be fun. It may be interesting. But if you can't answer what you want me to do, frankly, it's academic rather than a policy-driven book. And what we really tried to do here was, was to really work on a policy-driven book. So I'm going to take what Anatole said about our philosophy and about the great capitalist peace strategy and try to link it to the Iranian policy, hopefully throw a few bombs on China, North Korea, Iraq, and Middle East peace as well, and then sit down and wait for the five-minute rebuttal to cover these 17 areas. Metaphorical bombs. Yes. Yes, the, the real ones are all too close, indeed. Um, I think one has to start by looking at things as a realist would and say, one can only look at the ruination of the Bush administration's Middle East policy with a sort of sick bemusement. In the past year, the newly won gains of the Cedar Revolution have literally gone up in smoke. Israel has failed to destroy Hezbollah in a short, nasty summer war, and instead the rejectionist organization is the toast of the Arab world. Iran successfully flouts international will, moving ever closer to developing nuclear weapons. The Taliban, of all people, are making a comeback in Afghanistan, and bin Laden and Zawahiri are still at large on the border with Pakistan, and Iraq is, well, Iraq. The international standing of the U.S. is at its lowest ebb in memory, while radical Islamists have been the beneficiaries of American blunders in the region. Surely whatever was meant at the start of this process, this is not the outcome that anybody hoped for. But there is a morality, as Max Weber talked about, there's an ethic of consequence and an ethic of conviction. I'm not doubting the conviction of anybody who chooses to work in Washington rather than make money in New York. What I'm doubting is that this, some of these things could be foreseen well ahead of time. Ethical realism shows us how to avoid them, and it is the ethic and the morality of consequence that ultimately matters more than saying, my heart was in the right place. By the way, a comment I'm sure Robespierre made on his way to the guillotine. So what's the policy that flows from an ethical realist policy, from an ethical realist philosophy, and how would it look in Iran? Well, let's start by being prudent. The outcome in Iran, both outcomes, are a part of a slow-moving Cuban missile crisis. There are no good options here. Ground troops are not an option because the National Guard has been destroyed in Iraq, because the army is horribly overstretched. So bombing is what we're talking about militarily. We know of 150 sites, and to be kind, our intelligence has not been perfect up to now in the region. So I'm sure there's sites we don't know about. The Iranians have placed these sites underground. They've duplicated sites, and ruthlessly they've put some of these sites in urban areas, meaning although our pilots are magnificent, they're bound to miss. CNN will drag the likes of me before TV and say, are you in favor of burning children in the region? And if you don't think they'll do that on the BBC, you don't remember either the Iraq or the Afghanistan wars. This will be a huge public diplomacy disaster. I don't believe that there'll be military, uh, democratic modernization in the Middle East anytime soon, but the Bush administration does. Do they really think that following a bombing campaign, that remotely has an option in the region? More importantly and more realistically, what happens to the pro-American Western regimes in the region? How after a bombing campaign, how does Mubarak survive, King Mohammed of Morocco, King Abdullah of Jordan, uh, even the Saudi royal family? And who benefits if these things go awry? Al-Qaeda. The primary goal of counterterrorism is to deny to the terrorist what he wants, rather than giving it to him, which would seem to me what would go here if we weren't prudent. And all this for a military option that is unlikely to do more than retard Iran's nuclear program while they cause untoward mischief in Iraq and by merely threatening to blockade the Straits of Hormuz 
economically, have an oil spike, which destroys European economies and indirectly, through investment, our economy. If you cannot answer all those questions, maybe bombing isn't really the way to go. And remember, many of the people advocating bombing are the very people who gave us Ahmed Chalabi, who said how easy Iraq would be, how simple this all would be. Maybe a tiny bit of prudence, a tiny bit of what Niebuhr practiced is called for here. On the other hand, as Anatole said, uh, we have to choose the lesser of evils. Doing nothing is not a very good response either. It means the end of the NPT program. I believe it's over already, but many Europeans, uh, many of whom I've talked to in Berlin, do not. All international norms are gone, whether you believe in international law or the U.S., as I do, as the guarantor of last resort. Both are hopelessly discredited. Significant proliferation in the Middle East in the near term is a possibility with our allies in quotes, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, prime candidates. So the next regional threat in the Middle East, and surely that will be a matter of months away, could very well have then nuclear connotations. Is it like Israel to idly stand by and say, I trust the international order to safeguard our interests? doesn't sound like the people I talk to. Um, so I think we have to be very, very clear about that. Uh, beyond the fact that these new, new countries would have untried command and control systems and ties to rejectionist anti-Israeli groups, it isn't them so much as can we count on them safeguarding their nuclear material. And I think from an Israeli point of view, that does indeed pose various existential threats. So both of these are horrible options, and I think we have to start there. Then we have to, though, do what we say in the book as a third area of ethical realism. As Mr. Jefferson put it, we need to show a decent respect to the opinions of mankind. Whether we agree or don't agree, the people that we're trying to influence are the Iranian elite. So how would the Iranian elite see acquiring nuclear weapons? The first rule of foreign policy analysis should always be efforts to understand the logic flawed or otherwise of one's opponents rather than merely conveniently climbing on the most uh, accessible moral soapbox. The reasoning behind Iran's efforts to acquire nuclear weapons strike me as both obvious and powerful and cut across elements of Iranian society. It is notorious to quote Iranian poll numbers. And uh, when I testified before the House Committee on Iran, exactly contradictory numbers were quoted by other people. But surely part of the dirty secret here is that the modernizers, the Democrats, the magic silver bullet that's going to save us from all this, some of these people want nuclear weapons as well. Why? They're Persian nationalists. They have nationalism, too. We seem in America to have forgotten that there's more than our own form of nationalism, which is what our book is entirely tied to, looking at this from other people's point of view. As Atticus Finch said to his daughter, Scout, you don't understand a person until you'll walk a mile in their shoes. It's good moral advice, and it's good policy advice. Modernizers want the bomb, then, in many cases, as much as the mullahs. Uh, they're the new dominant power in the Gulf, thanks to us, and having nukes solidifies this standing. They're a proud 4,000-year civilization. Every Iranian says this to you. Why should upstarts like the Pakistanis and the Indians, being American, it's amusing that the Indians are upstarts, um, why, why do they have nuclear weapons and why shouldn't we when we go back, indeed, to Xerxes? Um, if it's okay for Pakistan, again, why not us? And the lesson of the past 15 years is that bad guys with nukes can do as they please. Witness Kim Jong-il. Witness the Russians in Grozny every morning. And bad guys without nukes go on trial. Milosevic and indeed Saddam. The Iranians have figured this out and tell you this in Europe quite regularly. And Iran is not wrong. You know, as Woody Allen said, you may be paranoid, but that doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. Um, the Iranians are surrounded by American satrapies in both Afghanistan and Iraq, and they know they're on the list. 
president made it very clear. We're constantly talking about regime change. So for them to negotiate that away uh, strikes many Iranians as the height of lunacy. So the goal of an ethical realist, if it is indeed rational from an Iranian perspective to acquire nuclear weapons, is humility. The odds against us stopping this are great. But indeed, ethical realists say, if we can't make people do what we want, which is what liberal hawks and neoconservatives say, we can at least change the calculations. That holds true for China, Russia, and Iran, and indeed the pieces of the great capitalist piece that Anatole talks about. So what we want to do is try to change the leadership calculations in Iran by using both carrots and sticks, which we haven't been really good at using in coordination in the last six or seven years. Um, to start, here's what a deal would not look like with Iran. Democracy is not some kind of magic mantra that will rid the situation of complexity. We just have to start there. Because even if there were regime change, it will not occur in our time, our way, or with anyone other than who is a Persian nationalist. So the idea that this will magically go away is indeed put forward by the very people who gave us Chalabi. There's no grand bargain that can be done here, and that's a time issue. Many of the people pushing for a grand bargain know full well it will never be done, which leads them to the bombing option, and I do believe that. Why can there be no grand bargain? Our outbasket on Iranian issues goes back to 1979 or a Mossadegh or before that, if you want. We will never solve the 27 outstanding issues, much as Ron Asmus might fantasize. Instead, let's draw up this hierarchy of priorities regarding Iran, not the laundry list of the national security strategy of 2006. Not all issues are equal. And yet when you read a government report, there is a long list, followed by a colon and then the appropriate semicolons of what we should do. If we try to do that, there simply is not enough time to stop the Iranians. Third, we actually have to talk to them. As Secretary Baker rightly said, I always thought the business of diplomacy was talking to people you didn't agree with, not necessarily to people you do agree with. It's great the Canadians and we get together to have a confab about the border, but the fact that we're getting information on North Korea through the Chinese, the fact that we're getting information on Iran through the EU3, that we hear everything fifth hand is seriously inhibiting our chances to do much of anything. Being a grown-up, I don't worry about the fact that when I stare at an Iranian, somehow all my belief system is going to leave me and he will somehow mesmerize me into becoming a Persian nationalist. I'm confident in what I believe. And the tough business of diplomacy, the realistic business of diplomacy, is to talk to people you actually don't agree with and not make that a condition. As we ludicrously have said, if you give in on Iranian enrichment, we'll talk to you. Nobody sane would accept that. We need to draw a real diplomatic line. No Iranian government could ever accept permanent termination of their nuclear program as a precondition to anything. Uh, they have nationalism, too, and they constantly bring up India and say, they broke the rules, we haven't totally, you now are trying to get as close to them as humanly possible, don't tell us about international norms. Let's instead go back to the letter of the law of the NPT, not because we're naive, not because we're stupid, not because we think the Iranians won't cheat, but allow for small-scale verifiable enrichment and draw the line at any move to weaponization. What's the advantage of this approach? You bring along everyone. Everyone has agreed to that. The Russians, the Chinese, all the European countries, and the Iranians will be hard-pressed to say, no, we don't want to agree to the terms of the NPT. We actually want to go for a nuclear weapon. Because if they do that, the cat, to put it mildly, is out of the bag. 
in return for this concession, in quotes, get the U.N. Security Council plus Germany to sign a binding agreement setting out in public what will happen if Iran does weaponize. Do this ahead of time. Let's stop playing this game of a false line that nobody thinks we're actually going to live up to. And at the same time, uh, continually say, well, we didn't really mean that ultimatum. We mean the next one. Nobody's taking it seriously, nor should they. Um, we need to move beyond competing cartoons to a system where America offers carrots, security guarantees, which is what they want. And Europeans offer sticks. The only stick that will work is an investment freeze. The Iranians need to create 600,000 new jobs every year. The two countries that are most involved in investment in Europe, Germany and Italy, um, are key. Sanctions have not worked. We will never have enough people. If we do a freeze of new investment, we can grind the Iranian economy to a halt. That has to be part of a deal. Even if we fail in this approach, we now have a coordinated approach to deal with an Iran with nuclear weapons and have moved closer to the great capitalist peace, or as Cardinal Richelieu put it, the community of reason that we live in. Frankly, a similar policy follows for China, which we'd be delighted to talk about in questions. The goal isn't whether China becomes a great power, as so many American think tanks talk about. That horse has left the stable. It is a great power. The goal is, does it become a status quo power or a revolutionary power? We can influence that decision as ethical realists if we're just a little smarter than we've been in the past because I think the jury's out there. And as to Iran, I think that should well indeed be left to questions. But again, the idea that there's going to be some sort of confederal solution has been obvious. I wrote a paper over at Heritage four and a half years ago saying the best thing we can hope for is confederation. But behind all this is a way to live up to American promise, not to withdraw from it. One of the things that was great was to reread Lincoln, very good Republican, to reread Eisenhower, a very good Republican, and also to read a, a very interesting British conservative, T.E. Lawrence, who when asked why he let the Arabs build the bridge rather than the British Corps of Engineers, the greatest engineers in the world, said, because it's their way, their culture, and our time here is short. That should be emblazoned in marble somewhere in Washington. It is not up to us to make people do things. The Bush administration's policies show the intellectual and practical bankruptcy of that. Instead, it is up to us to realize that we are in a world of other people. We are first among equals in terms of power, and that means we have a moral responsibility to leave the United States primarily better than we found it. Thank you. say thanks uh, to both of the authors for making up for lost time for the late start there. We're going pretty fast, so let me thank them for that. Uh, I'll introduce our first commentator, Lawrence F. Kaplan, who's a senior editor at the New Republic, where he writes about U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. He's a graduate of Columbia University, Oxford, and the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Uh, Mr. Kaplan also writes about foreign policy for numerous other publications in addition to TNR. Before coming to TNR, he was executive editor of the National Interest under its publication by Irving Kristol. Uh, after Mr. Kaplan will be Joseph Cirincione, the senior vice president for national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress. He's the author of, among other books, Bomb Scare, The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons, which will be published by Columbia University Press in the spring of next year, as well as Deadly Arsenals, Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Threats, the second edition of which was published in 2005. He teaches at the Graduate School of Foreign Service at Georgetown uh, and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He's an honors graduate of Boston College and holds a Master's of Science with highest honors from the Georgetown School of, of Foreign Service. With that, I give things over to Lawrence Kaplan.
Uh, well, thank you very much for having me, Justin. And uh, uh, Anatole, I promise not to use the I or the <laughs> L word uh, as long as you promise not to use the N word, uh, by which I don't mean George Allen's uh, preferred epithet, but uh, uh, I mean neoconservative, which has indeed become something of an epithet lately, uh, though a few years ago I might not have uh, minded the label. Um, I, I'd also like to congratulate uh, John and uh, Anatole on uh, two counts. Uh, the first is having survived uh, co-authorship. Uh, for those of you who've read the book, there's uh, a striking passage. I'm not sure if it's in the, the introduction or the acknowledgments where it, uh, it says essentially, uh, uh, though we agree on nothing and we've been at each other's throats, uh, we've nonetheless finished the book. And, and, it's, and, that, and that is an accomplishment. Uh, I, uh, the second count, I think, uh, on which they deserve of uh, congratulations, is uh, uh, implicit in the title, and I think that's uh, essentially rescuing the ethical component of realism um, from what I at least take to be its diminishment over the years. Uh, uh, today's realists, uh, I think, tend to wear their uh, bloodlessness, uh, if you will, um, on their sleeves and don't talk about too much about morality. Um, and of course, of course uh, Morgenthau and Niebuhr uh, were deeply concerned uh, with moral considerations. And uh, I think there's a useful reminder here that, that uh, uh, the balance of power, vital interests, other terms of art that we associate with realism were actually designed with uh, moral ends in mind, uh, not least of them avoiding uh, uh, war. Um, uh, that said, I, I, I think the book might have been titled uh, uh, Ethical Realism, um, uh, A Solution in the Aftermath of Iraq, or A Response to Iraq. And I think the uh, first sentence of the book makes this fairly clear. It says, what has failed in Iraq has been not just the strategy of the administration of George Bush, but a whole way of looking at the world. Now, I, uh, one hears a lot of this lately, and I, I, I think in a way, um, my question would be, um, having read the book, um, uh, 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 would be to note that this is hardly the first time that critics have extrapolated from the particulars of a war or even a disastrous war and perhaps gone too far. Um, I guess I, the question I have is, does bringing telling evidence against a war necessarily repudiate the doctrine uh, in whose name it was fought? And in this regard, I was, I was fascinated to find one of my favorite quotes. Uh, uh, actually, I don't have it here, but by uh, uh, John Foster Dulles that was inserted into the 1952 Republican platform where he attacked the negative, futile... Uh, futile and immoral policy of containment. Now, I, I, Anatole and John had this in the book to make a point about actually the virtues of containment, um, but I read it actually as a parallel of today because, of course, take it in context. What drove Dulles to his policy of boldness or policy of rollback or uh, whichever you term pref you prefer was the disaster of Korea. Um, and um, now, of course, once they gained office, the Eisenhower administration returned to the Young Doctrine pr 
promulgated by Truman and, in fact, enshrined it in official policy. And I think here we see a case of uh, uh, the, the trauma of a war uh, where a new doctrine was applied uh, metastasizing or hardening into an indictment of a broader doctrine um, despite its merits. Um, I think two decades later, the Democratic Party learns a similar lesson. Uh, After Vietnam, of course, President uh, Carter uh, uh, insists on transcending the belief uh, in Soviet expansion and the belief that it must be uh, uh, contained Um, The problem here, again, is the world. And um, specifically, I think if Americans uh, weren't interested in the dialectic, to paraphrase uh, 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 one of my mentors, Leon Trotsky, uh, the dialectic was was deeply interested in them. Um, And I think duly chastened by the world around him, by the end of his administration, uh, Carter, like Eisenhower before him, uh, returned to uh, Cold War doctrine, and I think realized that the doctrine's misapplication on the battlefield didn't necessarily invalidate the particulars of the doctrine itself. Um, similarly, I think today, when critics of the Iraq War advertise it as a repudiation of the broader Bush doctrine, uh, and and I agree with perhaps 60% of these critiques, but I worry that they may be jettisoning uh, jettisoning the good along with the bad. Uh, There is no doubt, and I've seen it up close many times, uh, 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 that uh, um, Iraq is, is really has been the most visible test of the Bush doctrine, and this is the place where it's been put most visibly to the test, Uh, Equally true, it has obviously failed that test. Um, I guess my question is, though, is is it really necessary to point out that Iraq notwithstanding, there are certain elements of the Bush doctrine, uh, namely democracy promotion, uh, which Anatole and John discuss at length in their book, uh, preventive war, which we just heard from Anatole about, um, and indeed, uh, a propensity or at least a willingness at least to contemplate unilateral action are there elements that have relevance beyond Iraq and that we're in danger of uh, uh, throwing out with Iraq? Um, now, I, I think it's interesting. I, I, the, the part that most interested me about the book uh, was the discussion of uh, democracy promotion and democracy more broadly. Um, I think Anatole and John's critique uh, with democracy promotion, like many people today, is is not merely with the mechanics of democracy promotion, um, but rather with its very desirability. And I think you see this in the book's uh, discussion and questions about the democratic peace um, and its preference for um, uh, what, what the book, I think, quite quite aptly terms uh, uh, a great capitalist piece. My argument would be that uh, you know there's ample room for disagreement about the hows of democracy promotion, particularly in Iraq, where I think uh, we've implemented a cartoon version of democratization, where you know the absence of oppression was somehow meant to be equated with the existence of democracy. But I think measured in terms of the taboo 
democracies have against waging war on one another uh, or their very thin record of exporting terrorism or the simple fact that they tend to be quite congenial to the United States, um, I think the historical record uh, leaves very little question about the whys of democracy promotion. Um, and, and, and to their credit, uh, the book does recognize the importance of democracy. But, but on the question of mechanics, what we get instead is um, uh, a discussion of uh, really what the authors call a capitalist piece, but what I think I, I might refer to uh, uh, as a commercial piece. Um, and here, here I was slightly puzzled um, because the pedigree – uh, uh, in, in, in the central component of the book is really not realist at all. Um, it's uh, fundamentally liberal. And uh, particularly, and I, 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 there's an echo, if you will, of, uh, of an almost Gladstonian idealism, which, which I suspect but don't know uh, is, is Anatole's doing. Um, but, but here we, we really have this classic liberal idea that, you know, you can take it from uh, Kant to, to, to Norman Angel right through to uh, uh, Bill Clinton um, that uh, it's really not the political organization of a society that counts, but rather it's economic orientation. Now, Anatole, I believe, made a parallel to Britain before the First World War, and I, I think the parallel is apt. And I, I guess my argument would be that that the idea that uh, capitalism and war, trade and war, are incompatible, uh, I, I think for 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 most of us should have really been repudiated uh, decisively at the Marne. Uh, and many times over uh, since then. Um, I, I don't think it should be necessary to point out that even in this era of globalization, uh, commercial ties are properly in effect, uh, not a cause of political stability. And, 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 th and that's really one reason... Um, uh, th that I worry about the central component of the book um, because, I, 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 again, I, I don't think it should be necessary to uh, point out that the, the, the logic of economics is not the logic of politics. I mean, I think the logic of politics more uh, closely echoes the essence of uh, international relations. Um, just Quickly on another point, uh, and, and after the North Korea test, we've been reading a lot about this um, uh, today on, on, on the question of uh, Iran and uh, preventive war. Um, I'm, you know, I, I'm not sure about, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the utility of preventive war, preemption, or whatever you prefer, uh, has been uh, disproved in Iraq. And, and it's interesting, a few months ago, or probably about six months ago, I thought it was a very thinly reported uh, uh, Time magazine cover story called uh, The End of Cowboy Diplomacy. And it, and it said something to the effect of uh, uh, the Bush doctrine of preventive war has been buried forever in the sands of Iraq. Well, then last week or the week before, uh, the cover of Time magazine said, uh, what will a war with Iran look like? <laughs> and, 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 and I think what this suggests is in this era of proliferation and 
and unhinged Brinkman, uh, it might be premature to banish preventive war from the lexicon uh, of American military affairs. Um, and, and specifically on Iran, I, I, I must say, I'm not so convinced um, uh, that deterrence and assumptions about rationality um, can be relied on here. Uh, I, I, you know, Henry Kissinger famously remarked during the Cold War uh, that deterrence barely worked with one relatively rational opponent. I think in this era of proliferation, when you're dealing with three or four and eventually five or six uh, nuclear-armed uh, uh, opponents, uh, None of them, uh, I, I would argue, completely rational. Uh, it's a more iffy proposition. And I think, uh, you know, before we, 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 we send Joe to hammer out an arms control agreement with uh, Ahmadinejad, uh, it might be uh, worth at least considering the proposition that the man means what he says. Um, and 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 my suspicion, at least, and and now we're we're down down in the weeds, um, is that uh, is 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 there may be worse options than uh, an eventual bombing strike in Iran. Uh, and with that, I'll hand it over to Joe. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, let me tell you what I don't like about this book. I really hate it when people take what I'm thinking and write it down before I can far better than I ever will. That really ticks me off. Uh, there's a lot that I uh, agree with in this book, and uh, I really like the co-authorship. I, I believe that this is what we need in the next phase. We need to reach out to find this kind of unity. We need to remind ourselves as Americans what we share, the values we all hold, the, the essential philosophy that this country has had for 200 years that needs to be restored. We're going to need to do everything we can to correct the disasters of the last six years. And I welcome this book as a great contribution to that effort. As far as I'm concerned, the number one task we have before us, before we propose our solutions, is to expose the failings of the current strategy, to detail the bankruptcy of the underlying ideology, and to repudiate individually and collectively the architects of this failure. Much of this is underway, but it needs to go much, much further. I don't believe Americans yet fully appreciate the breadth and scope of the failure of the policies and ideological views that have dominated U.S. foreign policy for the last six years. Never in American history has there been a six years period that has witnessed such a precipitous decline in American power and prestige. Never have we been so isolated in the world. Never have we been so hated. 
Never have we been so weakened. And it's our own doing. No enemy did this to us. This was not the result of 9-11. On September 12th, we had the support and the sympathy of the entire world. There were a million people demonstrating in support of the United States in the streets of Tehran. We had them with us when we invaded Afghanistan. And it helped us go to a quick and sure victory. The turn came at Tora Bora. This is part of what Lawrence refers to, the implementation of the strategy, not putting the blocking troops to cut off the exit. But then, it wasn't implementation, it was ideology that took over. It was the view that Afghanistan wasn't important, that Al-Qaeda wasn't that important, that you had to take the very troops that could have pursued and captured the killers of 9-11, and you turned them from that pursuit to this folly of Iraq, this preventive war strategy in Iraq. No. It wasn't incompetence. It wasn't the failure to execute an otherwise correct worldview, an otherwise correct strategy. This was rotten from the core. And we have to understand this and deepen this. And that's why we need those on the right and those on the left to come together and crush this neoconservative virus. We are not used to people like this. We have never, uh, under, we've never had a moment in American history where such a small ideological faction has leveraged such power, has had such a grip on American policy. They are never going to give up. They are never going to admit they were wrong. Okay, Francis Fukuyama has done a brilliant book about this size, also very well done. Charles Krauthammer is never going to say he was wrong. William Crystal is never going to say he was wrong. These people cannot be convinced they must be defeated. I don't know why people still listen to them. I don't know why as soon as they start talking, people don't head up and start running in the opposite direction. They have a nearly perfect record of failure. Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Iran, North Korea. Every single member of the axis of evil, every single target of this preventive war strategy, of this regime change strategy, is more dangerous to America today than they were five years ago. We invaded a country that didn't have weapons, and we turned it into chaos. We diverted our attention from the real threat of al-Qaeda and from the more imminent threats of Iran and North Korea. Iran has made more progress in its nuclear program in the last five years than it made in the previous ten. The same for North Korea. A country that George W. Bush, as a candidate, asked, why should I worry about North Korea, as detailed in the new book, State of Denial. He didn't get it. He still doesn't get it. This is an extremely dangerous period for America. We can't wait for the next election. We can't let these problems drift for another two years. They have to be corrected as soon as possible. The continued pursuit of this fundamentally flawed 
philosophy, ideology, and politics is doing great harm to the national security of the United States. This book helps us understand part of those problems. There are other books out there that go deeper into it. What I like about this book is its positive vision for the future and this restoration of American realism and, and merging it, or I think the authors might think re-emerging it, with the ethical values inherent in this realist school. However, I do believe that this book takes a somewhat rosy view of the strategy of containment, what they call the brilliant strategy that Truman and Eisenhower uh, created. Uh, I wish they had gone more into this, and maybe they believe this, and they just didn't have time in this short book. Uh, but there were serious flaws in this containment strategy. Let me just detail two. In the early 50s, when this strategy was really coming onto its own and being consolidated as the dominant strategy of the United States, the United States in 1953 overthrew the democratically elected president of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. Most America, I know John knows this, most Americans don't remember this, the Iranians remember this. They understand what we did. This was Dwight Eisenhower, the Dulles brothers, and British intelligence. They did this in the name of containment. You have to understand this. It wasn't just about oil, although the uh, Anglo-Iranian oil company had a great vested interest in this outcome of this coup attempt, or successful coup. It was designed because they feared that Mossadegh's nationalization of the oil industry in Iran would bring communism to Iran, would bring Iran into the Soviet orbit. They couldn't allow this. So they did it in the name of containment. It wasn't an isolated example. They used the same justification the next year when they overthrew the democratically elected president of Guatemala, President Arbenz. There were numerous other examples, and this tradition lived on with Henry Kissinger's overthrow of the democratically elected president of Chile in 1973, President Allende. You know, there is an ugly side of realism that you have to come to grips with. I don't think the authors embrace that side. I think they want to correct it, but you've got to talk about it. You've got to expose it. You have to bring it out to the light. It's not just enough to say, well, we're in favor of democracy. You have to understand what we did wrong and why that hurt American national security, not advanced it. Example number two, nuclear weapons policy. Realism, in many instances, embraces nuclear weapons. It sees this as the realistic answer to the security threats we face. Under realism, under the policy of containment, we went from 200 nuclear weapons in 1949 to 20,000 by 1950. I don't consider that realistic. I don't consider that a realistic appraisal of the threat, of the need for this number of weapons, of what we would possibly do with this number of weapons, but they were all justified. And they're justified today. We have 10,000 nuclear weapons still down from the peak of some 60,000, I'm sorry, 30,000 in the American stockpile in the mid-'80s. And we feel, and, and although the neoconservatives now dominate the national 
uh, nu the nuclear strategy of the United States, as well as our overall national policy, they've embraced nuclear weapons and see this as a realistic tool for these realistic missions, including possibly military strikes against Iran, as Cy Hirsch has documented. We have, to, we have to break with that, and in order to break with that strategy, in order to have a truly ethical, realist view of nuclear weapons and their role in the world, and the connection between our keeping an arsenal of this size and other countries' desire for nuclear weapons, we have to have a, do, do a much better job of critiquing what went wrong during this policy of containment. What was it that led policymakers to think that these numbers of weapons were necessary, to devote the budgets to them, to elaborate the doctrines that justify their use? That being said, I very much welcome the revival of containment that's contained in this book. This is a strategy that worked. It worked brilliantly. I've been debating this on talk radio shows for the last 24 hours on, on, on Iraq, and I, on a, rather North Korea, and I found myself making the same arguments that are presented in this book, on page, which I read on page 113 and helped inform my remarks to remind people that as repugnant as it is to deal with a, a decadent dictator like Kim Jong-il, we've done it in the past. Nixon negotiated with Mao Zedong, a man who's responsible for the mass murder of far more people than Kim Jong-il. Ronald Reagan shook hands with Brezhnev, who presided over the Soviet gulags to his last day, and who was responsible, again, for murder on a mass scale. Of course, you have to deal with these people. Of course you have to negotiate with them. And the policy of containing the threat and engaging the leadership worked. Contain, engage. It cracked them open. It helped open it up. It bought time for the, for the contradictions within those own societies, dialectic, the contradiction within those own societies to mature, and in the case of the communist China, to open it up and allow free trade to start to begin, capitalist business practices to penetrate and take over. And either you believe in capitalism or you don't. Either you believe that the capitalist system is going to force changes in the political system, force these regimes to open up, or you believe or you don't have the faith in capitalism, and you believe that what you really need to do is sweep away the re regime at the top in order to get the kind of change that you want. I much prefer the first alternative. I much prefer containing that threat, engaging these countries, particularly when we're now not dealing with empires, such as the Soviet Union, or the, the largest country in the world, like China. We're talking about minor, relatively minor global in the global system, relatively minor countries. Iran is regionally important, but it is still uh, only 79 million people, a, a minuscule GDP, something that certainly a country as powerful as the United States should be able to deal with without invading that country, without killing tens of thousands of innocent civilians. There are alternatives out there, and I applaud the authors for helping us realize what those might be in elaborating both the philosophical and political framework for the new uh, strategies of the 21st century. Thank you very much.
Thanks both uh, to Lawrence and to Joe for excellent comments. Uh, I will defer to the authors if you want to respond from there with any brief uh, rebuttals or, or commentaries, or if you'd like to come up to the dais. I just want to accept the criticisms. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. What can I say? And a good phrase from the Truman era, give them hell, Joe. <laughs> Actually, I have to point out that um, Joe did write some of this uh, a number of years ago, almost three years ago, I think, because we wrote an op-ed together for the New York Times saying precisely that the only way out of the developing Iraq quagmire was indeed a regional concert involving, uh, involving Iran. Uh, with unerring intelligence, Joe has succeeded in putting his finger on some of the fault lines in this book between the two authors. Since it's not my job to um, uh, expand those fault lines further, uh, I have little choice but to um, uh, duck um, most of his, uh, his criticisms. Uh, I'll just say, say this. Um, we, in our remarks about Eisenhower, we did refer... Um, to errors and crimes made by that administration, by which we meant, of course, precisely Iran and Guatemala. Uh, I think our view was that bad, very bad as those were, when you think of, my God, the disasters that those two American administrations could have caused if they'd adopted a different policy. I mean, literally the destruction of the world if they had gone for preventive war uh, or for, uh, for rollback of the communist domination of Eastern Europe. Uh, we felt that um, the undoubted mistakes and even crimes that they committed did pale by comparison. I mean, Guatemala was a crime, so was Iran, and Iran had dreadful results which we're living with to this day, but we're still living, we're still alive. We wouldn't be. We would not be here today, I think if the Truman and Eisenhower administrations had gone for preventive war. Um, and in Korea, of course, just to talk about this, something raised by um, Lawrence, uh, the problem was precisely when the American strategy in Korea became too ambitious. It was going fine uh, up to the whatever it was parallel. The problem was when it was decided to try and impose a crushing defeat on the Soviet Union uh, and China uh, by rolling the communists back out of North Korea altogether and going up to the Yalu. Um, so uh, that's my um, thoughts on that point. Now, Lawrence raised an extremely uh, interesting uh, question about Gladstonianism and development. To which I would reply this. No, I'm not a Gladstonian. I'm a Whig. And so was Burke, by the way, at least in terms of his formal allegiance. He was a Rockingham Whig. Now, if you look at the Whig tradition, uh, when it comes to the development, well, they would not actually, for most of their history, have talked about democracy. Um, but if you look at Trevelyan, if you look at Acton, on the subject of the development of civilised constitutional and law-abiding government in the world, they were gradualists. And not just that, but they had certain affinities, one could say, even to the Marxists, in their emphasis on the fact that to build 
uh, such institutions, true institutions of this kind, and make them stable, you had to have profound changes in the, the economic and social order of a country. Their whole analysis was founded on the idea that these institutions had spread gradually through time in Britain, and that their achievement in 19th century Britain, by the way, a partial achievement by the standards of today, was achieved only through the rise of the middle classes uh, in Britain on the back of an economic revolution and the gradual displacement and civilization, not, not of course defeat or execution of the previous aristocratic elites. And it is on the basis of that tradition that John and I argue that if we are to have true and stable democracy in the world, we have to bring about uh, economic and social and institutional development in the countries concerned and that that in general is also possible only uh, through international and regional peace. Because look, look at the history of Latin America. We know, just looking over the border from the United States, that where you have weak democracies in impoverished uh, countries with very weak legal orders and predatory elites, whenever there's a serious crisis, these democracies go down like nine pins. What's the point of building more democracies like Venezuela in the 1980s? Now, this takes time. The other point when it comes to the democratic peace is, look, you can make the argument that democracies as such never go to, don't usually go to war, although one could equally say, by the way, that the, that the democratic hopes uh, before 1914 were also defeated on the Marne. The feeling that the peoples would rise up against war obviously also disappeared in the First World War. But a more important point is that all three of the states... Uh, that caused the, uh, the, 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 the Second World War had been democracies, or at least constitutional states. They'd collapsed into fascism, and then fascism went to war. So, I mean, it becomes a slightly circular uh, argument there. On learning the lessons of Vietnam, um, I can't agree, because they were not just the lessons of the battlefield. Did America learn the lesson about trying to, to bring an American system to a country in the teeth of local nationalism? No, it did not. Iraq makes that very obvious. All this talk about gaining peace through democracy in Iran makes that very obvious. We do not understand the link between nationalism and mass politics. Did we learn from Vietnam the impossibility of trying to spread respect for human rights and the American system in the middle of a bloody guerrilla war? No, we did not, obviously. Did we learn how American troops, not because they're Americans, but because they're soldiers, like any soldiers, how they are going to behave in the middle of a savage guerrilla conflict? No, we did not. We didn't learn that from Vietnam. We didn't learn any of these lessons from Vietnam, and that is why we are in this mess in Iraq, and to a lesser degree in Afghanistan as well. The, the, the point is, you see, that this is not just about the errors of the Bush administration. It is, as we say at the very beginning of this book, about a certain bipartisan American way of looking at the world, um, which leads into these terrible mistakes. And, I mean, just to give an example from a fellow Brit, but a Brit in Iraq, I don't know if 
many of you have read this wonderful book by Rory Stewart called The Prince of the Marshes. Uh, he was a governor in southern, southern Iraq, and there's a wonderful moment where he, he's getting these emails from the Green Zone in Baghdad uh, about increasing respect uh, for minorities among the people of his province and increasing or improving Iraqi driving standards. The irony, of course, is that at this moment the Saddam militia are lobbing mortar shells over the wall. Uh, so I, I would say that, um, d despite what Lawrence says, uh, we still have an enormous amount to learn. Um, and I would also like to invite his thanks for the fact that I believe in all my remarks so far, I have not mentioned the N-word. Thank you. <laughs> well, before concluding, I'd like to thank Cato. I don't know that I did, and Justin particularly, and my friend. I see Chris Preble out there. As, as a great place where people with different views can actually do what Joe's saying, come and begin to talk about areas we do agree on, about moving forward, because if we don't do that, we're a bunch of cottage industries. And we know this. I'm a realist. We write in national interest. Neoconservatives write in the Weekly Standard. Uh, Wilsonians uh, read and write in foreign affairs and go to council meetings, and never the twain shall meet. We haven't served our people well by talking about the end of history for the last 15 years because we only talk to each other. And I love that Cato did an event where we have genuinely different opinions, where we can actually have a discussion that might go somewhere. So thank you for all that. I'd also like to thank the discussants for actually giving me something to do here to try to clean the plate. I used to be a debater in, in Britain, and English schoolboy debate is among the most ruthless things in the world, this side of English rugby. Uh, and we say to clean the plate at the end, and there's no way, as you can look at my paper, I can possibly clean the plate. So I'm just going to hit four points as highlights and go from there. Um, and I will, however, have, Lawrence, I'd like to thank you, but I'm going to break the rules and mention the N-word. Um, you're beginning to hear this, and in fact, three years ago, I did hear this, and I want to relate a story about what is now the prominent theme. Bush is incompetent. Let's not look at the underlying neoconservative ideology that might be the reason for his incompetence. It's all Bush's fault as though his beliefs and how things were done have nothing to do with it. Uh, I talked to a very leading neoconservative three years ago at a German meeting. Uh, I mentioned this in Open Democracy. I won't mention his name to protect the guilty. Uh, but he said to me, look, John, if Iraq goes wrong, we're going to say Bush is a moron and move right on to McCain, and you're still going to be out of power. Okay? I've, I've thought about that every day since. He's a great analyst, and there's a lot in that. And if we let him get away with that, that's our problem. This is not an academic argument. This is a political argument for the soul, both of the country and, in this case, of the Republican Party. It isn't just the incompetence laid out so brilliantly, as Joe says in Fiasco, Cobra 2, run the list of books. It is a way of looking at the world where General Garner is told, you will have Italian-style problems. They'll be kissing our people in the streets. They love the fact that you're imposing the system on them. There will be minor problems. There will be nothing political, a word that has not been mentioned, Clausewitz. It isn't a military problem in Iraq. It is a political problem. It always has been. If the Sunni can be made stakeholders in the process, we will get enough intelligence that we will move forward very well there. If the Sunnis are not stakeholders in the process, no number of troops, no amount of smart generals really matter. And stakeholders are not one at the barrel of a gun. And I think that that 
answers that. By the way, it was one of the greatest analyses ever, my neoconservative friend, and I worry about that every day. Uh, secondly, I think it's interesting that you both mentioned history, that we're all fighting to control history. Throw in Peter Beinert's book, which I thought was nuts about this. Really, if you're in favor of preventive war, and here's to answer uh, Lawrence's question, I know preemption and, pre- and preventive sound the same. They begin with P. They're both long words. These are not the same things. They are not the same things. No one says preemption is immoral. It doesn't violate international law or is off the table in terms of statecraft. If you're the Israelis and you know the next day on good intelligence the Egyptians are going to attack you, as in 1967, nobody complains when you bomb their air force the night before. That is not what happened in Iraq. That is not knowing the next day that you are going to be attacked. This is preventive war. It is entirely different. The problem with preventive wars, if you fight wars of choice, what's to stop the Chinese from saying, you know, now's the time the Americans are busy. Let's finish off those pesky Taiwanese. The Indians and the Pakistanis have a go at each other over Kashmir. The Russians take over the rest of the Caucasus. Who, do we, who are we that we get to say who gets to do preventive war and who doesn't? You live in the jungle very, very, very quickly. No one is saying in this crazy era, I would agree, that preemption is not part of American policy. And indeed, the Kennedys talked about it during the Cuban Missile Crisis at great length, according to Bobby's diary. Nobody's saying that's not an option. But preventive war is what the Bush people have been about. It is a very different animal indeed. I know the words are confusing, but I think we have to get that that straight. Again, as to history, it strikes me that people in favor of preventive war are echoing Douglas MacArthur, Senator Taft, James Burnham, in effect the intellectual losers of the Cold War who desperately want to be the winners. That's why everyone's Truman. Everyone's Eisenhower. Everyone's in favor of containment. Why? Politically, they won. It worked. Joe, yes, we say in the book, our Benz, Mossadegh, I totally agree with you. If we'd had more time, we would have gone into more detail. But we do write in the book, these were disasters. But when you weigh up the broad sweep of history of containment doctrine, I think this is one of the greatest examples of success out there. And yes, we do and ought to look at the failures. I think that's right. But everybody wants to be Truman, despite the fact that in advocating preventive war, many people are advocating what the losers in the Cold War <laughs> thought, not the winners. Don't let them steal that. Okay, it's a very important point. Um, Last, um, and I'd like to make an ethical point, I think Lawrence is right to really stress that realists are always seen as bloodless and proud, proud of it, almost. Uh, and I think that any American political movement that doesn't understand morality as part of how Americans think is doomed to be a minority movement. And this is kind of how Anatole and I started talking a couple years ago, that why couldn't realists admit the deep moral basis for what they thought. And that's kind of where we began. And I'd like to end with uh, Fulbright's quote in The Arrogance of Power, where he's asked how classical realists would actually behave. And he he starts out very sterile, very geopolitical, and it ends very moral. And I think that that's indeed what ought to happen. We just need to be more honest about it. And he's asked why Burke, Metternich, and Castlereagh would not be rollback people. And he says they would wish to come to terms with the world as it is, not because the world would be pleasing to them, almost certainly it would not be, but because they believed in the preservation of indissoluble links between the past and the future, because they profoundly mistrusted abstract ideas, and because they did not think themselves or any other man qualified to play God. The last, I think, is the central point. I believe that a man's principal business in foreign policy, as in domestic policy, and in his daily life, is to keep his own house in order, to make life a little more civilized, a little more satisfying, and a little more serene in the brief time that is allotted to him. I think that man is qualified to contemplate metaphysics, but not to practice it. 
the practice of metaphysics is God's work. Thank you. Thank you, thank you both. Uh, we've made up a bit of time, so we've got some time for questions. Let me uh, put forth the requisite rules. Uh, number one, please wait for the microphone to come around so that everyone can hear your question. Number two, please identify yourself and any affiliation you may have. And number three, please keep your questions as brief as possible so that we can get as many as possible answered. Uh, so with that, we'll take any questions that we right there in the back. Embassy of Italy. A question very short. I'd like to ask the authors if they see any chance of the, uh, the, the policies they suggest uh, being implemented uh, in a relatively short term. Sure. Sure. I mean, I, I'd say, yes, we're all shopping for candidates. Um, let, let's be blunt. Uh, the midterms are going to be, are going to be devastating um, to the Republicans to some degree or another. Uh, two narratives will come out. One is that it's all Bush's fault. Let's move on to McCain, as my friend said. And the other narrative will be ours, which is that, no, neoconservatism has gotten us into this mess. We need to return to the Eisenhower kind of Burkean traditions of the party. Um, and that if we move away from that, we really don't deserve to win. And that argument will not be academic. It will be political. It will be played out in the primaries by various presidential candidates who are going to have to adopt one mode or another. And then within two years, we will see. I think that the Republican nomination this time is more important than at any time since 1952. And Lawrence brings this up rightly. Taft was actually had more delegates than Ike going into the convention. But Taft looked like the rumpled curmudgeon that he was when he showed up. Eisenhower wore his Ike jacket with those five stars. The Republicans had been out of power 20 years, and they picked a winner. And he continued containment doctrine, totally ignoring Dulles, who wrote the platform in 52. I think whether the Republicans win or not, to reclaim Burkean-style realism with this ethical component as well, naturally part of it, is the single most important thing, whether they win or lose. I leave Anatole to talk about the Democrats. Uh, yes. Um, or rather, no. Uh, I am not optimistic in the short term. Uh, however... I do believe that America, throughout its history, has, unlike some other systems, always in the end been capable of learning from reality and learning from its own mistakes. I believe that that will be the case in future as well. Um, it seems to me that as the present impasse that we find ourselves in, in so many parts of the world simultaneously demonstrates... Um, we're, we're headed, if things go on, not, I think, for a, a range of wars, for the simple reason that America does not have a range of armies to fight wars. Um, but I fear that we are headed for a range of really severe humiliations in different parts of the world. And I trust that the American establishment, the bipartisan establishment, will be capable of learning from this. Thank you. Gentlemen, right down here in the front. Umit Soy with Turkish NTV television. Uh, thank you for the great presentation. Um, in line with your policy proposals, how do you think the United States should handle its troubled relationship with Turkey? And this includes uh, the way how to treat uh, Kurdish aspirations for independence. Both authors, please. Thank you. Um, yes. <laughs> Uh, 
Turkey, I mean, we, we talk about Turkey above all because, you know, this is a short book <laughs> and we didn't have much time. In fact, we had literally four months to write this book. Um, so we, we don't get into the deeper questions of Turkey. We talk about Turkey in the context of the Middle East as an essential part of a settlement and of a future order there. So here I'm speaking simply for myself, not, not for John, you, you understand, but what, what I would say. Um, I think that America is correct to press for Turkish membership of the European Union. Um, of course, there are downsides to that because it does greatly annoy the Europeans, but, well... Uh, <laughs> um, I think that it's perfectly obvious that for, if Turkey is to have any chance of getting into the European Union, which, as we all know, it may not, frankly, it may well not, given the attitudes of the... Europeans. It's perfectly obvious that Turkey does have to change internally, and that requires a greater respect uh, for ethnic groups within Turkey, including the Kurds. At, uh, you, one can talk you know, about all the ways in which that might be, be possible in terms of a change in the Turkish system, but that would take a long time. I would just say, though, that... Um, we both of us, um, and on the basis of ethical realist principles, are in general, and by which I mean in the, the overwhelming majority of cases, against breaking up existing states. Um, unless, frankly, either the situation has become completely insoluble, as it has in the case of Kosovo, for example, already, or in the Georgian conflicts, uh, or, well, which is the same thing, the, the states concerned have already broken up, and it's just a question of you know, ratifying what's already happened. Therefore, we would categorically exclude support for, Tur for Kurdish secession from Turkey. You know, considering we've never ever talked about that, I pretty much agree. Um, the, the only, he says in horror at the beginning. Um, the one thing I would say, though, is, and here's the, I, I deal with Europe day to day, and, and one of my concerns is that after 15 years with continually declining Turkish support for EU accession going on, um, they meet all the conditions, jump through all the hoops, and the Austrians vote 80 to 20 to not involve them in it, which would be the current numbers in France, 70-30. There's an overwhelming repudiation, and there has to be a referendum in both those countries, and perhaps more of them, uh, for Turkey. We as policy analysts, in terms of ethical realism, have a duty to have a spare tire in the car and not look at each other the day this vote goes wrong and say, gosh, how did this happen? Because I have yet to hear from either, I remember it was, it was Matt Bryce and Ron Asmus both saying, I'm an American, I'm confident. And I said, I'm an American, but I can read poll numbers, Matt. <laughs> and, and they're not good, and you have to tell me how they change from 80-20. That's a huge swing, even over a decade. And the EU strikes me as Mr. Micawber and David Copperfield. They just keep hoping something good will turn up. That's not a policy, that's a wish. And so the rest of us need to have an alternative to Turkey being cast totally in the darkness after making these tough concessions. Let's start thinking about that now. There's the gentleman right there on the aisle. Thank you. Norman Bailey, Potomac Foundation. A very quick question, Mr. Holzman. Uh, why do you, and apparently your neoconservative interlocutor, uh, equate John McCain with uh, George W. Bush? It seems to me that in many ways they are almost polar opposites. We don't. I, I don't think he's right. Um, I think that that is, that is something you certainly hear around town now, is that Senator McCain in some ways is to the right of the president on, or sounds like he is, on Iran in Iraq. 
But the thing, as you say about McCain, is it's not that simple at all. I mean, one of the things is that confronted with detail, he's a soldier, meaning he's a pragmatist, meaning the highfalutin theory may go out the window. Here's a man who's friends with Senator Hagel, a classical realist who we both cheer for constantly, and Bill Kristol, and he's friends with both of them. I think to put him in any camp right now is way too premature, which is the comment I made back to the gentleman I was talking to in our car ride. Um, I, think, I think that also to pretend uh, that ideology, that Senator McCain won't see the ideological ramifications of that, is an insult to his intelligence. Um, and so I don't think that, that, we, that any of us in, in realists in the Republican Party are giving up on Senator McCain by any means. I do think that there are, there are contradictory statements, and that's what policy is about and what guys like me are about to see how that works. But no, I would never make that a self-fulfilling prophecy. We have time probably for two more questions, and we'll take them both. Uh, gentleman right there on the uh, that side. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan Rausch of National Journal. I'm here as a journalist without an opinion, but will impersonate someone with an opinion. And for <laughs> Mr. Messrs. Uh, Levin and Holzman, the obvious critique is that uh, realism pre-9-11 failed to prevent the conditions that led to 9-11 and that you're proposing that we replace a proven failure of the Bush administration with the previous proven failure. Can you address that a bit and what specifically was wrong with the previous doctrine of realism in the Middle East, which arguably led to the outbreak of terror here? Let's, let's take the other question first and then we'll answer them both. There was a question over there, was it? Let's take that one as well. Uh, Jeff Gannett with Council for America. I kind of mystified by the historical analogies of the uh, the Cold War, basically, because it seemed to be the contention is here that the containment policy led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. But that didn't happen during the Eisenhower administration. It happened after the Reagan administration. I thought the Reagan administration had something to do with the collapse of the Soviet Union. If anything, the Reagan administration, the Reagan doctrine, the driving the Russians out of Afghanistan, trying to overthrow the pro-Soviet regime in Nicaragua and elsewhere in the world, as well as Reagan's speech at the wall and calling the Soviet Union the evil empire, that this all runs antithetical to the notion of containment and, if you want, ethical realism. But it was an extremely successful policy. Was he, he just lucked out or what? Questions both? Yeah, no, not at all. The, the whole point of containment from Cannon's very first formulation of it was that this was going to take a very long time. Um, you know, that the Soviet Union had to be isolated... Um, isolated apart from anything else from the world economy. I mean, it was also self-isolated, of course, and that its own internal problems, the insanity of its system, would lead to its collapse. But there is absolutely nothing in containment that ruled out helping to force the Soviets out of Afghanistan, for heaven's sake. After all, from the very start of containment, uh, it was assumed that America would on occasions have to uh, either fight itself or back local forces to roll back local uh, instances of, of Soviet uh, aggression uh, or expansionism. Uh, the point, however, was that you weren't going to do that in Europe, where it would lead directly to a nuclear war and the destruction of humanity. Uh, the point, however, I mean, the other point about Afghanistan is, uh, which once again, I mean, uh, Niebuhr and Kennan wrote about it inordinate length, for God's sake, pick your battlefields. In Afghanistan, and I was in Afghanistan on the side of the Mujahideen as a young journalist, you could get the people on your side. You could get nationalism on your side. You could get religion on your side. In Vietnam, well, not religion, perhaps, but all these forces were working against you. So, I mean, I, I, I think, actually, that I'm afraid that's completely wrong. I mean, this is all, you know, Reagan's strategy was totally compatible uh, with containment. 
Um, on the... Sorry, what was the other question? Uh, failures of realism pre 9 Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, yeah, we, we address that directly in two ways. The first is, and we, we make this explicit criticism of classical uh, realism, which has, of course, been made by many other people, which is its indifference to the internal development of, of states. And so we have an entire section on how we have to build up key allies uh, in, in the Muslim world, particularly, and in, in the Middle East, we have to strengthen their economies, their societies, their institutions over time. The analogy we draw, however, is not the Marshall Plan in Europe, uh, which is a false analogy, um, because there, generally, you were supporting democracies, but also you were only trying to kick-start again or restore su very successful capitalist states. The analogy we use is East Asia, where American aid and open trade, both because we emphasise both these elements, were, of course, critical uh, to, develop, to creating the economic miracles in South Korea and Taiwan, and to a lesser extent uh, in Malaysia and other countries as well, which in the long term uh, led to democracy. Now, this is the very long term, because after all, as we've just seen in Thailand, even a country which you know, does achieve a measure of democracy can revert again. But nonetheless, I mean, this, you know, this was a tremendously successful um, strategy. And here is also our ethical component. We say that it demands, well, there's the ethics and the realism. The ethics say this demands a vastly more generous uh, American approach to development aid. But we also say, let's be realistic, the American people will only wear this when it comes to countries which they see as a, potentially a serious threat to American vital interests and to their own security. So we talk about the countries in the Muslim world that America really has to help and that it isn't helping, and not to anything remotely like the, the degree uh, that these countries require. The other thing where we clearly differ from the previous realist approach is in saying, look, before 9-11, um, it was a, a realist approach but predicated on, well, what was called dual containment, not talking to the Iraqis, not talking to the Iranians, not talking to the Syrians. Oh, and by the way, in a way, it was m even more contain uh, containment because simultaneously one was trying to roll back and expel Russian influence and so forth. Um, we, and, of course, the attempt at Israeli-Palestinian peace was, in effect, abandoned. So what we say is... Um, on the, we need a realist approach, but a realist approach uh, to compromise and the creation of a regional concert to deal with these critical issues. Now, both of those things, both development and the concert idea, make a clear break from realism as it was practiced in the region before 9-11. I'm all that's standing between you and your lunch, so I'll be very brief. Um, as to Reagan, I mean, this is another historical battle that's being fought, and we say in our book, this is also the man who, having said these things to placate the rollback right, behaved like a total realist. Kennan would have applauded Reagan's second term. Mr. Gorbachev is a man we can do business with. Let's have swinging cuts in nuclear weapons. Uh, let's do what Mr. Schultz says and not what Mr. Weinberger says so much. Uh, it's very, very hard, I think, to make Reagan into the neoconservative he's been made in. The key thing that Reagan did, the genius politically of what Reagan did, was to bring along both neoconservatives and realists, which in retrospect looks miraculous 
much as President Clinton pulling these strands together in his party in retrospect looks rather miraculous. But I think Reagan, I think Kennan, Niebuhr, Morgenthau would have totally bought in to what Reagan did in the second term entirely uh, when indeed he said, we can begin to wind this down. It, the Soviet night is dying inside its armor. This is exactly what Kennan predicted. It takes time. And that leads me to the second point. The thing that's missing in this whole debate, part about neoconservatism, but about utopians, and Burke says this, they're impatient with history. They think they can add water and get George Washington. Okay? It's more complicated. The advantage of realism is that you say it takes time. Where we differ, as Anatole said, is saying internal stuff matters, which realists have never been good at. The billiard ball is always thrown at realists' face. We do say, as ethical realists, as Kennan, Morgenthau, Niebuhr certainly did by saying Soviet communism is not Chinese communism, is not Vietnamese communism, is not Cuban communism, that nationalism matters, internal dynamics matter. A one-size-fits-all approach is exactly where we go wrong. And so we say, and I'm going to stress trade, which we do in the book, the single most underreported story out there is the collapse of the Doha Free Trade Round. Everyone in the developing world is doing what we're saying. After 50 years of hearing about dependency economics, it's all colonial people's fault. It's all everyone but their own fault. They're saying we're never going to get enough aid to make us better. Trade is the way forward. Foreign direct investment is the way forward. And what do we say in return? Well, I'm glad you guys agree, but we have farmers. And so what you need to do is trade in financial services in Mali and Ghana, of which you have none, and not trade in agricultural products, of which you have many. Do we really think al-Qaeda aren't going to figure this thing out? This is a disaster. This is both ethical because it helps them and realistic because it engages the rest of the world in the great capitalist peace. I can't think of a better example than what we write about trade. Just lastly, there have been three political presidents since the fall of the wall. George Herbert Walker Bush was a classical realist. Um, President Clinton was a garden variety Wilsonian. And this President Bush is strongly influenced by neoconservatism. None of them have managed to do what Truman and Eisenhower did, which was transfer their philosophy to the next president, particularly from the other party. We have not reached our Truman moment yet where that has worked out. I think given what happened in Iraq, it's unlikely to be neoconservatism, but I think Joe's call is the key point. The rest of us who are floating around out there must really be brave, work across our tribal boundaries, as Anatole and I have tried to do, see what binds us together as Americans, and move on from there, because any policy without both ethics and realism strikes me as bound to fail in the United States. Thank you. That's a great note on which to end. Let me thank all of you for coming, and please thank our authors and our commentators, and join us up for a sandwich in the Winter Garden. Thank you very much.